This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 3 million members and supporters who are working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. We've got one more thing for you before we start the show. Anna Jane and I are going to be at the People's Climate March in Washington, D.C. on April 29th, and we want you to join us there or at one of the sister marches around the globe. Y'all, we voted, we marched, we've been writing and calling our members of Congress, and now it's time to march again. So please join us. And to find out how, you can text RESIST to 21333 to RSVP to a march near you today. Again, text RESIST to 21333 and you will RSVP to a march near you today. So please join us either in D.C. or at a march near you, and we will see you there. Hi, I'm Anna Jane Joyner. And I'm Marianne Hitt, and this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. If you like our show, subscribe to us on iTunes, and please leave us a review on iTunes. This really helps us get the word out. Today, we will be talking about science and faith, some big upcoming climate marches, and we have a great interview with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, world-famous climate scientist who has been recognized by Time and Fortune as one of the most influential people and most effective climate communicators in the world. We're going to catch up with her about the state of our climate and our country since we were last drinking wine together in Paris. But first, Anna Jane and I have some catching up to do. Anna Jane. Hi there. How are you? Hi. I am so excited about our episode today. Um, And I want to start off by thanking the Energy Gang for having me on recently as a co-host. And I want to welcome any new listeners who found out about our podcast from the Energy Gang, which is an incredible show that I listen to every week about the latest on climate and energy and policy. And uh, it's kind of a go-to for lots of energy nerds like myself. And it was an honor to be on the show. And welcome new listeners who heard me on the Energy Gang. Um, Anna Jane and I have a great episode today. Um, And I'm really excited that we are going to be together in a couple of weeks at the People's Climate March on April 29th in Washington, D.C. There's uh, satellite events all around the country. And we're going to be recording. So come find us. Look for us um, in the sea of millions of people uh, because we will be there and we'll be trying to document it all for the show. Are you so excited, Anna Jane? I am so excited. And I get to see you like twice within a month. I feel like that's going to be so much fun. And yeah, I just I feel I don't know the like these events are so reinvigorating and inspiring and just remind you that when people come together, we can make a difference. So yes, so stoked. And there are hundreds, I think over hundred events planned all around the country. So if you can't make it to Washington, um, you can still be with us in spirit. Um, And we have a great episode today in the lead up to not only the People's Climate March on the 29th, there's also a science march on April 22nd in Washington. And then there's going to be a week of action in between. And uh, it's so perfect that we have an interview today with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, one of the most not only famous climate scientists in the world, but most effective communicators. As after the interview with her, I kept thinking about the story that I wanted to share with you real quick, Anna Jane. I don't know that I've ever told this before to you or on the podcast, but um, 
kind of ties together climate and science and weather and how we talk about all this stuff and how how hard it is sort of personally. So I grew up in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which is this beautiful resort town in the Great Smoky Mountains. And growing up there, I always felt really safe because we didn't have natural disasters. Like we didn't have hurricanes or earthquakes or fires or floods. Um, and then last winter and around November, I was um, on a work trip and I was sitting in my hotel room. I was looking at Facebook as you do uh, at the end of the day. And I started seeing all these images come in about these fires in Gatlinburg. And I was like, well, that's weird. We don't have fires in Gatlinburg. And then I, there were more coming and there were people like out, outside of their hotel rooms with this like blazing infernos right outside their hotel room windows. And I got really scared because my parents are there still. And so I texted my sister and she was scared and we called and we texted our parents and they weren't responding. And it was one of the scarier nights of my life, honestly, not knowing if my parents were okay in my childhood family home. And then by the next day, it was clear it was one of the most devastating episodes ever in history. That place, over a dozen people lost their lives um, and thousands of buildings and homes were destroyed. And uh, I'm sure the economy will recover at some point, but it's going to be a struggle. Uh, and it was just, um, it was very scary. And it, it felt to me like, like climate change had landed on my doorstep in this way that I never thought it would, frankly, in my lifetime. And it also made me feel like that could happen to anyone, like any listener out there. If you think, oh, this isn't going to happen to me, or this isn't going to happen in my lifetime or in the place where I live, uh, I would, I would, um, that experience taught me a very different lesson that it, it's on all of our doorsteps. And so I say that, um, and I'd love to know what you think about this, Anna Jane, because um, I tell that story because afterwards I really wrestled with whether to write about the connections between that fire and climate change, because scientists said that that the reason that, that the fire spread so fast was because of this unprecedented drought was happening in the middle of winter in a place that's basically a temperate rainforest. So there's this unprecedented drought that is linked to climate change, which is why these fires spread so far and so fast and were so devastating. And yet I, as a person who grew up there, as a person who understands climate science, was afraid to make those connections because I was, I was worried that I, you know, for some, some reason was sort of overstepping. And I just wonder, we talked about that with Catherine, you know, we talked about, about how people see these things changing around them, but they're still kind of afraid to connect the dots. Yeah. I remember that time I was, you know, I grew up in Asheville and I was actually home visiting and it was, I mean, there was, we literally drove through plumes of smoke. Like there was, I think there was something like 23 wildfires happening in the, in the, the Blue Ridge mountain area, which is just over the hill from Gatlinburg, a beautiful town. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, yeah, it was very scary. One of the wildfires was 10 miles from my sister's house and it, and I, I totally understand what you're saying about like being weary of connecting individual climate or weather events to climate change. But I think twofold, like a lot of these weather events we're now demonstrating are connected directly to climate, which, you know, Catherine talks a lot about in this interview and in, in which, you know, clearly the scientists did connect that particular drought to climate. But also I just feel like sometimes we're too careful and, and, and that it, it hurts our ability to actually reach people in ways that matter. Like 
I think the reality is as all of these weird weather events are happening more and more often, people are connecting it to climate weather and, and by not making those connections and saying like, yeah, it's really weird that there's been like, I don't know, 10 tornado watches over the past couple months in Alabama when we didn't used to get those kinds of storms or, you know, like I think those things actually are powerful and they reach people at home. And I mean, I'm not advocating being untruthful at all, but I do think we should be bold in making those connections because I think it is how a lot of people experience climate change and actually make the initial connection, this kind of global weirding as, as Catherine calls it. Well, I did make that plunge and wrote a piece about <clears throat> connecting those dots. And I got a great response from people I grew up with who were like, yeah, the, the things are different here. We never had fires and weird droughts in the winter like this before. So um encourage our our listeners to check out this interview and and think about maybe being a little more bold and at least uh having those conversations with folks if nothing else um and it was really it was so fun to catch up with Catherine because the last time we saw her we were all together in Paris drinking wine in cafes at, as the international climate agreement was being signed I know it was such I felt like it was such a perk of being a climate activist. <laughs> like there's we all got to go to Paris and hang out with each other and hang out with all these fascinating people and explore this like historic and gorgeous city. And and, and you knew her from your prior work, right? From because she's I not did. just a famous climate scientist. She's also <laughs> famous for being evangelical. She is. Yeah. So I actually met her on um on a trip to Apalachicola, Florida, which is ironically about three hours from where I now live. It's this gorgeous, like old Florida town. Um, and they're famous for oysters. They have Apalachicola oysters are like the best kinds of oysters in the world. But over the past few years, particularly in 2012, there was a horrible drought, which was directly related to climate change. Um, that that kind of just wiped out the bay where they harvest the oysters. So me and Catherine and my dad went down there to talk to the local oyster men, you know, many of whom have been doing this work for generations um, about their their direct experience. And it was a really sad story because, you know, a lot of them are having to find new work, even though they're in their 40s and 50s and, and have only ever been trained to do this. And they're telling their kids, you know, to to do to not go into this field, even though some of them have been oyster men for generations. You know, it's and it really did hit home for me, like that this is happening to real people in real places that are very close to home. Um, but one. Yeah. Yeah. One really interesting thing that happened is like, you know, we were we were working on this documentary and we were trying to convince my dad to that climate change was real by by introducing him to these kinds of experiences and people like Catherine, who are amazing climate scientists and also Christians. But it was it was fascinating that he he really um, he, he kind of wrote off most of what she was saying. And what was really interesting is that which isn't all that surprising. I mean, he's a open climate skeptic. So he's looking for reasons not to not to believe in climate science. But what was interesting is a couple months later, we we met a climate scientist who was who was an older gentleman, um, but was an atheist and didn't share his faith background. And and he was the one who was able to really move my dad. And, and, you know, we didn't we didn't get him to say, yes, climate change is real and we all need to go fight against it. But we he definitely moved more towards him than he did with Catherine or any of the other people we met along this journey. And it, I don't know, it made me think a lot about kind of the role that gender plays, which is very unfortunate in this whole thing. And I'm sure it's something you've experienced being a woman in this field. 
I I think women in all fields have (laughs) the experience (laughs) of having a male colleague say the exact same thing you did and yet having that be suddenly listened to and taken more seriously than uh, the same thing that came out of your mouth. And yet, um, uh, Catherine Hayhoe is undaunted and is is recognized all around the world as as an incredible leader and a communicator and a hero. And it's so great to to have her on. And uh, just before we go to the interview, one last thing: since we were together in Paris, not only have we had the crazy election and you know this questioning of the factualness of facts and all that, which we're going <laughs> to get into in the interview, but she also um, was on stage in front of the White House with Leonardo DiCaprio and. President Obama talking about climate change on the South by South lawn event. Um, and she uh, so that that is just giving you sort of a little flavor of her her worldwide uh, celebrity and the kind of circles that she's running in these days. And yet she made time for us on the podcast. So uh, so let's go to the interview. Um, but we are going to be at the People's Climate March. We hope that we will see you there. And uh, let's go to our great interview with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Um, so the last time the three of us were together, we were in a gorgeous little cafe in Paris drinking wine. <laughs> I wish we were there again um, right now. Um, but it's so good to be connecting with both of you, two of the most badass, brilliant women I know working on this issue and just lovely humans and friends. So thank you for being here with us, Catherine. And I'm just, I'm, it's been a crazy year. That was a little over a year ago. How are you doing? How are, how are you holding up in these crazy days? Yes. Well, sitting at a cafe in Paris with a glass of wine makes everything look better. And (laughs) these days we probably all feel like we would like to be doing that on a regular basis. (laughs) Yes. When you look around the world, the number one question I get these days is how do you keep your hope up? How do you have a positive perspective on what's happening in the world today? Not just with climate change, but with many things with, um, with science and with other issues. And this is an issue that being human. I struggle with myself too. And of course, the number one thing that I have found is whatever information we focus on, that's what goes into our head and that's what shapes our attitudes and perspectives. So if anything, over the last few months, one of the biggest changes that I have made is I go out of my way to deliberately look for good, positive news, whether it's exciting things that are happening at the local scale with clean energy whether it's the fact that the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus in the U.S. Congress now has 34 members, half of them Republican, Um, whether it's the fact that there's Republican leaders calling for a carbon tax, or whether it's just the fact that I was at church yesterday and this woman I don't even know came up to me as we were all walking out and she said, you know, I just found your Facebook page and it's great and I wanted to tell you, hang in there. I know times are tough, but it's going to get better. Well, thank you so much for saying that because I, uh, it's hard to be a messenger of hope these days, but I think we need it more than ever. I just was uh, at a, a meeting earlier with 350 people from the Beyond Coal campaign from all around the country, and we were meeting on the same day that Trump announced all of the climate rollbacks. And that was what I tried to send them off with was, you know, you're a network of people who are replacing coal, our biggest climate polluter, with clean energy go out there. There is a light in the darkness. You know, there is a path forward. Um, and so thank you for being that messenger of hope because we really need it. I'm uh, 
I'm curious what your on your kind of science uh, science side of your work these days. What are what are some of the most important things that you think you're discovering that are happening that you think people really need to know this, even despite all the political cacophony coming from Washington, if people just knew these couple of three things we're learning about the science, it would really help uh, maybe break through the partisanship and, and light a fire under everyone. That's a good question. I think that, first of all, if people could recognize that a thermometer isn't Democrat or Republican. I mean, these days, literally the number that a thermometer get, gives you is somehow seen as a partisan issue. If people could understand that we scientists are doing the very best we can to be as impartial as we can with the information that we generate, checking and cross-checking and double-checking and triple-checking. And so when it goes out into the public sphere, that information is something we feel very confident about, that climate is changing, that humans really are responsible. We've been studying it for over 150 years. Uh, the impacts are serious, but there's also solutions. So first of all, I think a basic trust in science is one of the most important things. But then second, related specifically to climate change, the fact that it is not a future issue anymore. It is not about what's happening only to the polar bears or what's going to happen to future generations, but not us. Climate change is already affecting each of us in the places where we live. And if we open our eyes and look around, we can see that evidence ourselves. And then the third thing that I think is more an awareness that is building in the scientific community right now is the fact that we have never pushed our climate system like this before. In fact, as far back as you look in history and paleoclimate records, we have never seen this much carbon dioxide being pushed into the atmosphere this fast ever. And so the potential for surprise for things that we scientists have not yet even conceptualized, or maybe we've thought of, but we don't think it's very likely, the potential for surprise increases the further we push our planet. And so that is why from a purely precautionary conservative perspective, it just makes sense to wean ourselves off fossil fuels as soon as possible, because we are conducting an unprecedented experiment with our planet. And chances are, odds are, that if anything, our scientific projections are actually too conservative. Well, let me ask one follow-up question, and then Anna Jane may want to talk about the weather because she's been in some crazy weather lately. Um, but on that topic of pushing these thresholds, one of the things I wonder about, again, as an activist who is working day and night to drive down emissions as fast as possible, um, the, the idea of tipping points and the idea that this is this is nonlinear or it's not just going to march along at a steady pace, but whether it's, you know, the methane, the permafrost starts to thaw and that releases lots of methane, which further, you know, starts the cycle of more permafrost melting and then more methane and more climate change. I mean, what it, is, is it, do we know when and where we might hit these tipping points or is it really, we're just doing our best to project that, but we're entering this world of where things could change very quickly or not. And this is hard to say at this point. No, we don't. I mean, we often look at the targets like the two degree or the one and a half degree target that nations agreed on in, in Paris when we last saw each other <laughs> almost a year and a half ago. We often look at those targets as, oh, well, as long as we're just, you know, 1.999 degrees, we'll be okay. But if we're at, you know, 2.0001 degrees, then everything's going to hell in a handbasket. That isn't the way those targets work. The reality is we don't know, like you just said, 
we don't know at exactly what point which tipping points might come into play. But we do know for sure that the further we push our planet uh, beyond its past state, the further the more carbon dioxide we pour into the atmosphere and other heat trapping gases, the greater the likelihood of these tipping points occurring. So that again, just because we're uncertain about those doesn't mean they aren't real. And because we're uncertain about those, it makes even more sense to be cautious and conservative. And I use those in the original sense of those words, not in the sense that they are used today. Hey, y'all. Sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to remind you about the People's Climate March, which is coming up on April 29th. It's going to be such an inspiring, amazing event. Um, You know, the big marches in D.C., but you can also attend any of the sister marches across the country. To RSVP, just text RESIST to 21333. That's 21333. And, you know, it's just it's so important that we show up right now. It, it really is one of those critical, urgent moments and we can do it together and we can't wait to see you all there. So, again, to RSVP, text RESIST to 21333. All right, back to the show. So I um, am curious, particularly about this connection between weather and climate, because, A, I just moved down to Alabama from New York City and um, was here over the winter and we just had insane storms. And like, according to the locals, way more like severe storms and flooding and tornado warnings and watches than they used to have over the winter, that usually that's a spring phenomenon. Um, like today, for example, we had a tornado watch for five hours this morning and I was holed up in fear and anxiety, but luckily I'm totally fine. And I, I feel like I watched the, yeah, thankfully, um, I watched the kind of climate change conversation on Twitter pretty closely. And it feels like a lot of people, especially over the past couple of months have been, uh, referencing like just really weird weather. And I'm, I'm curious, like, how do we, I know it's related to climate, but how do we, how, you know, how do we talk about it and think about it um, in a way that is, you know, honoring to the fact that individual weather events, you know, are different than viewing climate change as a whole? Yes, that is one of the hardest questions because we always want to know when something weird happens, we want to know, was that climate change or was it natural? And the answer is actually always somewhere in between those two these days, because we have altered the background and conditions of our atmosphere to such an extent that everything that happens has a little bit of human influence in it. But, you know, one event, the frequency might have doubled because of a changing climate. Another type of event we don't know yet. Another, the frequency might have tripled or even increased by a factor of 10. So to actually look at whether climate is changing the risk of certain events, we we have to look over climate timescales. And climate timescales are not one year to the next. They're 20, 30, 50 years. And over those timescales, we do know that extreme heat is getting more frequent. We do know that in many places in the United States, heavy downpours are getting more frequent as well. And that just makes sense because in a warmer world, water evaporates quicker. So there's more water vapor sitting up there waiting to be picked up and dumped on us. We also know that sea levels are rising, increasing the risk of coastal flooding. And we know that the strongest hurricanes are getting more frequent. Or another way to put it is hurricanes are getting stronger uh, because they're getting their energy from warm ocean water. Now, for many of us, we say, yeah, but what about tornadoes? What about crazy thunderstorms and hail? What about all this unseasonal weather? We do know that the seasons are shifting too. 
I mean, where I live here in Texas, we had the winter that wasn't a winter. But because these things like tornadoes and hailstorms happen at such a small spatial scale, we haven't yet been able to definitively connect the dots on whether there's a trend or not. Because before radar, you know, there were less tornadoes, but it's because people reported less tornadoes. So we just don't have enough of the data to say for sure if there's a long-term trend. But anecdotally, there's so much information coming in on how things are really looking weird, especially over the last year and a half, because of course, 2016 was the warmest year on record. And 2015 was the warmest year on record before that. And 2014 was also the warmest year before that. So uh, all of that warmth affects our weather patterns and is causing some crazy stuff to happen that makes all of us look up and say, wow, there's definitely something different going on. Yeah, it's it's really, I don't know. I think it's, you know, just be, having worked on climate change for like 10 years now, it did used to feel something that was in the future. And now it feels very present. And I am witnessing it in my everyday experience. And that that's a a weird thing. But I actually want to talk about something other than science, because you are not just an amazing climate scientist. Um, you're also a Christian and a pastor's wife and the daughter of missionaries, uh, which is a background we share in common. And so you also kind of uh, exist in this in this interesting space between faith and spirituality and science and climate change. And I'm just I'm curious, like how how is you know, how how is that part of your life? manifesting these days? You know, how do you see them supporting each other? Um, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to hear your take on that. It's a sad commentary on the world we live in these days. I think that those roles are seen as some type of oxymoron as if they couldn't coexist. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so often people are like saying you're a what? I mean, I get I have to say, sadly, I probably get a 100 times more people telling me you can't be a real Christian if you're a scientist, than I get people telling me you can't be a real scientist if you're a Christian. Somehow, we've arrived at this idea that studying God's creation whether it's this planet or this galaxy or this universe, studying God's creation is an unchristian thing to do. That is a relatively new idea because if you look back in history at some of the leading scientists back 100, 200, 300, even 500 years ago, all the way from Newton through Faraday and through Francis Collins today, they are motivated by their faith to understand this world that we live in. I mean, if we believe that a thinking sentient being designed this incredible universe that we live in, that is the assumption on which science is built that somehow this universe will make sense and we can use our brains to figure out its logic. I mean, to me, there's really no incompatibility between those ideas, but somehow we live in this world where studying science has become this suspicious activity. And that absolutely breaks my heart. I think it's troubling to a lot of people that we're suddenly in this time where uh, our political leaders are spouting alternative facts and the sort of authority of things that arrived at through the scientific method is suddenly in question when, you know, people fly in airplanes and go to the doctor and have computers in their pockets and rely on science, you know, a hundred different ways in a day. Um, as a scientist and a person of faith who, you know, you may have a special insight into the where this doubt of science has come from, uh, where do you think we go from here? Because it's obviously... Uh, that we it, it can't go on like it is today. It's just an untenable position that we're in with science and doubt. It is. Where has it come from? It's been deliberately sown. 
So with the upcoming science march, there's a lot of discussion inside the scientific community as well as out. Does this march politicize science? Does it mean that scientists are somehow taking sides on a political issue? And the answer to that is, the science has been politicized. That ship has sailed. That donkey is out of the barn. How did it get politicized? It was politicized by politicians. Why? Because they didn't like the implications of the science. And when you look at the science that forms the basis for understanding the climate system and for building the climate models that I work with, that's the same science that we use to design airplanes, nonlinear fluid dynamics. It's the same science we use in our refrigerators every day, radiative transfer. Yet somehow, oh, radiative transfer is acceptable when it's a refrigerator, but it's not acceptable in a climate model. That makes absolutely no sense. Science is science, no matter where you apply it. And again, that's what attracted me to science, the idea that on this little insignificant planet orbiting the sun in the corner of the Milky Way galaxy, we could somehow figure out the laws of the universe that govern what's happening at, on the opposite side of the universe from us. That is the basis of physics, that the laws that we have here are the laws that apply everywhere. And just because you say they don't, doesn't mean they don't. It just means that we are dangerously shutting our eyes. We're burying our heads in the sand to information just because we don't like the implications of it. It's as if we went to the doctor and the doctor said, you have something really unhealthy looking in your lungs and it's likely a result of the fact that you've been smoking for the past two or three decades. And you turned on the doctor and said, doctor, you're scientifically motivated. You are quoting me information from these peer-reviewed journal articles that are nothing but political tools. You're doing this because you just want to make money and I'm going to go away and ignore everything you said. Well, obviously we would think that person was crazy. But that is the exactly perfect metaphor of what our politicians are doing today. It's just, it's stunning. Yes, and stunning. <laughs> That's stunning. a good word. Yes. And I think this is related to, to that question, but not only, you know, are you a very renowned scientist, you've also been called the best communicator on climate change of our generation. And you were recently uh, recognized by Fortune magazine as uh, one of the world's top 100 leaders. Um, and I'm just I'm super interested in how we better communicate about this issue and, you know, through storytelling and just through better, you know, framing. Um, I would love to hear the in, you know insights that you have on that, especially in light of this kind of new world that we're in where um, it's increasingly politicized. Our political you know situation is a mess. I don't need to remind all of us of this. Yes. But how do we how do we communicate better in this in this environment? Because um, that just seems absolutely critical. Yes, an environment where facts are no longer seen as fixed, immutable things. Now, don't get me wrong, they are. But in our communication, if you say, well, that's a fact, somebody will say, well, I don't agree with it. And it's fascinating because a science fiction writer, Isaac Asimov, back in the 80s, deplored the state of democracy where, as he said, there's this dangerous idea that my opinion equals your fact. And that is exactly the world we live in today. So how do we talk about climate change? I can tell you the number one thing that we don't want to do that does not work, that just deepens the divide between us and leads to even more entrenched positions than before is to haul out all the facts. So someone says, oh, it's just a natural cycle or those scientists aren't sure about it yet. Or I heard it was sunspots causing climate to change or it isn't actually even changing. They told me that the ice in Antarctica was growing. So it was all a false alarm. 
So whenever anybody says that, our instinct, especially if we know anything about science, is to say, I know that's wrong and I can show you the facts that prove it. But here's the thing, that actually won't change anybody's minds because their real objections are not scientific. Their real objections are the fact that they have been told, we've all been told, that we can't be who we are, whether that's a Christian or a conservative, politically speaking. We can't be who we are and agree that climate is changing because if we did, that would mean government control, loss of personal liberties, complete destruction of the economy, possible rise of the beast and the Antichrist. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like an exaggeration, but I have heard that quite a few times. Oh, I, I believe too. it. Yes. <laughs> Knowing my father, yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, there's many people who say that. So, But it's easier to say it isn't real than to say it is real, but I don't support the solutions. And so that's why, as I talk about in our little global weirding videos, we have these little short five-minute videos we did for PBS Digital Studios called Global Weirding. One of my favorite videos is called, if I just tell them the facts, they'll change their minds, right? And the answer is wrong, they won't. But what will change minds is talking about solutions, solutions that are palatable, solutions that are attractive or cool, solutions that are good for the economy or local jobs or national security. Solutions will change people's minds. And the social science has showed that as humans, if we feel like we can be part of the solution to a problem, we're much likely to accept the reality of the problem than if we feel like it's this huge thing that we could never fix anyways. You know, I think that that's such a great um, a, a great thing to keep in mind also going into the science march as, you know, I think mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the upsides or the uplifting pieces of this whole problem is that we actually have the solutions. You know, we, we have solar panels, we have wind turbines, we have energy efficiency, we have got all the tools at hand. And, um, and that kind of brings us back to the, the top of the interview of keeping your eye on hope. And I wonder, last question for me, and then I'll, I'll let Anna Jane close it out. But as we go into the science march and you have, you know, one foot in the world of science, one foot in the world of faith, a lot of people see as being incompatible. Uh, what is something that you wish, you know, one side would be saying to the other or being more understanding about from the from the other when it comes to, to climate change, whether it's something climate scientists need to learn from people of faith or something people of faith need to learn from climate scientists or maybe a little of both. Mm. The number one thing would not be to actually say anything to each other, but rather to listen to each other. Mm. Yeah, because so often, yeah, so often we feel like we already know what the other person is going to say. And even if we did know what they were going to say, just understanding why they're saying it can often make us understand where they're coming from. I mean, we're all humans. Uh, when it all comes down to it, at the most fundamental level, we pretty much all want the same thing, which is just to be okay. And so if you can listen beyond the rhetoric to people's fears and their hopes, their anxieties and concerns, and also their loves, then... That's how we might be able to find common ground. On that note, I'd love to just uh, hear as our last question, like what does kind of keep you, like even on more of a personal level, like what is that that spark of hope or love that, that keeps you going and, and what advice do you have for our listeners so that they can keep, you know, keep marching forward in that way too? So one of the biggest things that gives me hope are people. The stories, sometimes the big stories, but even more often the small stories of individual people making a difference in the place where they live, again, whether it's with 
clean energy and new technology, whether it's founding, you know, a new citizens climate lobby group out in the wilds of West Texas and 30 people show up to a group that you thought, you know, there'd be 30 protesters outside and two people inside. Um, Or just hearing about people who are talking about this issue from a different perspective and sharing from their hearts why they care about it or cities that are taking action to prepare for a changing climate so that the people who live there will be okay, whether they agree that climate is changing or not. So when I hear these stories of people, that is what gives me hope. And for me too, as a Christian, one of the biggest things that gives me hope is the idea that there's a bigger picture here. And we are in the moment, in the present, looking backwards, unable to look forwards. And so rather than being overcome with anxiety and fear, we are actually told, and this is my favorite verse in the Bible, it's not a, you know, it's not one of those verses that we green if you have the green version of the Bible. It's just a verse about our attitudes and it says, God is not the author of fear. So if I am overwhelmed by fear and by anxiety, that's not coming from God. And that verse goes on to say what we do have from God is a spirit of love, a spirit of power to get things done, the ability to act. And my favorite, a sound mind to make good decisions. And that, when it all comes down to it, is what keeps me going. Oh, that I is totally fantastic. <laughs> yes, thank you. I feel like we all needed that. <laughs> yeah, oh. you know, Anna Jane and I both are uh, people of faith ourselves. And I think uh, we uh, draw some, on some of that same inspiration. And you definitely just gave some to mm-hmm. me. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us and thank thank you for your incredible, incredible work. It it means the world. Oh, well, thank you for having me and thank you for what you do too. You you are some of those very people who encourage me when I follow what you're doing. So thank you. Well, it is a shared feeling. Y'all <laughs> <You know? laughs> have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. All right, that just about does it for us. Marianne and I want to thank you guys so much for listening. Big thanks again to our interview guest, the amazing Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Our theme music is by River Wireless. This episode was produced by the magnificent Zach Mack, who has not yet signed up for the People's Climate March. Zach, you need to RSVP. Resist 9779. Text now. Subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave us a review on iTunes. This really helps us out. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and we're going to be posting all episodes, updates, and info on our Twitter page, which is at NPLH Podcasts. So be sure to follow us there. If you like our show or have any questions, comments, suggestions, or would like to be part of our show by reading a dinner party climate fact for an upcoming episode, tweet at us. Again, we're at NPLH Podcast. And remember, there's no place like home.